All right, we're not going to be in the book of Revelation tonight because we are going to look at Christ in the Gospels. John chapter 8. This, is, this text we're looking at is one in which we see Jesus interacting with some Pharisees and religious leaders, Jewish people of his day, and dealing with them in a way that was culturally what was expected. We're kind of jumping in the middle of a discussion, but I think it's, it's fine for t- this evening as we meditate on Christ and what he was teaching. We're going to begin John 8 at verse 48 and read through the end of the chapter down through verse 59. John f- uh, chapter 8, beginning at verse 48, we read these words. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Jesus, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? And Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know thou hast a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Let's pray. Lord, as we get a glimpse into the teachings of our Lord, and his interactions with those religious leaders of his day, I pray that it would be instructive to us, that it would feed our souls, and that we would know what is the joy of your word, what is the joy of our salvation in Christ, and what is the hope that we have that we have been talking about in the book of Revelation, the hope of no curse, of your eternal presence, and joy at your right hand. Help us now as we meditate upon these truths this evening. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is a Jew, obviously, and he's interacting with the Jewish people of his day in a way that would have been expected. The Jewish people were often um, using and employing the skills and orations of their day to interact with other people. And this is one perfect illustration of it. In the Greco-Roman times and in the influence of of Greece in the Jewish people, 
they would have been utilizing the same kind of skills when it came to argumentation that the, the Gentile people would have done. But one particular spin that the Jews especially liked to use was that of questions. In fact, they would actually answer questions with questions. Here we have the Jews interacting with Christ, and we've missed some of what has been discussed so far, but for sake of time, we're just going to look at the questions that are within the verses that we just read. The Jewish people are essentially rejecting Jesus. (laughs) If we're putting it in a nutshell, that's what's happening. They're rejecting who Jesus is, and they ask in this text that we have before us three questions. And Jesus provides three responses. So if you're going to take notes for an outline, the outlines are basically three questions and three answers. In verse 48, we see question number one that is posed to Jesus. The Jews say to him, say we not well that you're a Samaritan and have a devil. What is the question they're asking here? Well, put simply, the question they're asking is, aren't you a false teacher? Aren't you a false teacher? Because they say, don't we say well that you're a Samaritan? And if this was not classic racism, I don't know what is. These people, these particular, particularly the Jewish leaders, viewed the Samaritans not only as a lesser people group because they were not um, fully Jewish, they were basically half-breeds, if we could use that word, but also they despised them even more because they believed that the Samaritans were diluting the truths of the Old Testament. In fact, when it came to questions of the law, the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, who were the conservative sect, the Sadducees were the more liberals, they didn't believe in certain things like miracles, the resurrection, things like that. The Pharisees were more of the religious conservatives of their day, only they were ultra, ultra conservative. They essentially believed that you had to strictly follow the teachings of the Torah. But the Samaritans didn't see it that way. In fact, when Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman, one of the things that she highlights was a discussion that they had with the Jews. When Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman, which, by the way, was also scandalous uh, for his time because that was essentially unheard of, that one uh, Jewish teacher would be talking and, and instructing a woman in theology privately at that well, like he was, but also the fact that she was a Samaritan. She was one of the hated peoples of the, of the Jews, She interacts with Jesus, and she asks him a question. In chapter 4 of John, she says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's highlighting a discussion that the Jewish people had with the Samaritans, namely, where are we supposed to worship? So all, I, only, I only bring that up simply to say the Samaritans were viewed by the Jewish people, in a sense, as false teachers because they were teaching what the Jews believed to be misrepresentations of the, the Torah, the Old Testament. So here, they're suggesting that he's a Samaritan. I think also there's slightly a dig at him because that would have been akin to um, likening him as, as a, with a derogatory term. But then they also say, not only are you a Samaritan, but... Don't, don't we say rightly that you have a devil? Not only do they suggest that Jesus is teaching false teachings, but they actually suggest that he's in league with Satan. Who's your true teacher? Surely it's not the God you claim to follow. It's not the God of the Jews, the one who says that I, the Lord, am one. Surely you have a devil. You have Satan as your influence. And if Satan is the influence, then most certainly you are a false teacher. 
So it can be easy for us to read verse 48 and believe that all they're doing is kind of throwing derogatory terms at Jesus, but actually they're suggesting, in a nutshell, that he's a false teacher. So they say, are you a false teacher? And Jesus responds to them in verse 49. He says, I do not have a devil. In fact, in in other occasions when the Jews were suggesting that Jesus was in league with Satan, in fact, they even went so far as to suggest that the reason why he was able to heal people and he was able to make the blind see and the sick healed and he was able to make the lame walk again was because he was utilizing the dark powers that Satan had. So they're saying, you are influenced by Satan. And Jesus' simple response to them is, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not utilizing the powers of Satan, nor am I in league with him. But what am I doing, Jesus says? He says, I honor my father. In other words, I have the true teaching. The true teaching that is meant to glorify him. You're asking, am I a false teacher? And my answer is no, I'm actually the one true teacher. And he says in verse 50, I seek not my own glory For there is one that seeketh and judgeth. But verse 51, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, if a man keep my sayings, he will never see death. That seems like a random addition to what he's saying with their charge about if you're a false teacher. But it's actually the reality of what happens if he's the true teacher. Because if Jesus is not a false teacher, then everything he's saying is true. And he says, if you keep my sayings, you will not taste death. What kind of death is he talking about? Well, that's the second question that he essentially asks. And it's kind of a two-pronged question. The first part of the question is, are you greater than the patriarchs? Because they say to him in verse 52, now we know you're in league with Satan. We know this for a fact now. Because listen, here's our logic. Abraham's dead. Who is Abraham? Probably one of the greatest patriarchs in the history of the Jewish people the one that they revered and elevated to the highest degree, Abraham, the progenitor, the the one that we look to when we, we look for who is our father. Abraham is our father, but where is he? He's dead. What about all of the prophets? They're dead. But you, Jesus, you're saying, if a man keep my saying, he'll never taste death. So they're arguing from the greater now to the lesser, back to the greater, because when you get to verse 53, they say, are you then greater than our father Abraham, who, by the way, is dead? Abraham not only is the greatest patriarch, he is the greatest of our, our history, but even he, the greatest one in our Jewish people's history, is dead. So if you want to say that you're the one who can make people live again, or live and never taste death, You're claiming that you are greater than Abraham. That's the Jewish logic. They're using logic to reason with Jesus. And they say, there's no way. Abraham is the greatest patriarch. And there's no way you are greater than him. It's not possible. So, if you're greater than our our father who is Abraham and he's the one who's dead, what are you making yourself? Because Abraham's dead. And you're claiming to be greater than him. What exactly are you trying to say, Jesus? That's their question. How will your words then even prevent death? That's the second part of the question. Not only are you greater than the patriarchs, but how will your words prevent death? 
And here's Jesus' reply in verse 54 to their second question. He says, if I honor myself, my honor's nothing. But my father's the one who's honoring me. In fact, anyone who had seen Jesus at his baptism will know that that's exactly what happened. When Jesus goes to John the Baptist and John says to him, what, what are you doing here? You're asking me to baptize you. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Jesus says, permit this to happen. This must happen. So John says, okay. And he takes Jesus into the water and he baptizes him in the water. And as, as Jesus comes up from the water, there is this great light from heaven and there is the, the Holy Spirit of God descending like a dove on Christ. And they hear this word, this is my beloved son. The father pronounces his blessing and honor upon Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm not honoring myself. My father has honored me. You guys are suggesting that Abraham is the one with the greatest honor. But let me tell you, the one whom I have come from, the father, the one you claim to say, that one you claim, he says in verse 54, who is your God? He's honoring me. So you're trying to tell me and play these word games about how Abraham is the greatest father and that nobody could be greater than him and you are a crazy guy and you're in league with the devil because you're claiming to be greater than Abraham. And Jesus says, God the Father said, I am the one who deserves honor. I am the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. So if you want to take up any kind of complaints about me being honored, take it up with the one who has honored me. Furthermore, in verse 55, he begins to condemn them. For you have not known him. The Greek word is gnosko, and the idea is simply that they know in an experiential way when you know somebody, like, like uh, when it talks about Adam knowing his wife Eve in Scripture. It's obviously talking about an intimacy there. Jesus is using that word to say, you have not known him. You claim to have a relationship with the God of Israel, so much so that when you go before the public, before all of the other Jews who revere you, by the way, you'll sound trumpets so that everybody knows that you're about to come and give your alms. You will have people prepare the way as you come to give long, flowery prayers. You want everybody to believe you know him. But I tell you, says Jesus, you haven't. You don't know him. And if I should say, well, back up, he says, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I'll be a liar just like you. Jesus now is leveling both guns at the Jews here, particularly the religious leaders. And he says, you claim to have a relationship with the father. And I'm telling you, there's nothing of the kind happening. You don't know him. You don't know him. And if I claimed I didn't, I'd be lying just like you are claiming to know him. Who is the greater one then? The greater one clearly is Christ. The Jews revered their patriarch Abraham. And they had the audacity to ask Jesus, are you greater than the patriarchs? And Jesus says, let's let the Lord himself decide. He has honored me. He has given to me honor. But Jesus also says, and addresses their question, how are you going to be one who can prevent death? Because the greatest patriarch is dead. His, his bones are somewhere in a grave. He's not alive. 
Our greatest patriarch is dead. How can you possibly hope to offer anybody life? And Jesus says in verse 55, not only do I know him, I know my father, but I also keep his sayings. Isn't that what the Pharisees thought they were doing? The Pharisees thought they were keeping religiously the sayings of Jesus. They believed that they were the squeaky clean Christians, if I could use our anachronistic term here, because obviously there's no Christianity here yet. They believed they were squeaky clean, that they believed they were the holy ones. And they looked down on anybody else who was not holy like them. And Jesus says, I know him, and what's more, I actually keep his sayings, unlike you. But here's here's the last two things that Jesus says that I want us to kind of clue in on. One is in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus now takes their appreciation, their affection, their veneration of the great patriarch Abraham and says, not only has God honored me above him, but even he himself was looking for me. What could Jesus be referring to? I think we won't go back all the way to every verse there, but I do want to draw your attention to Genesis 12, where God talks to Abram, who is in paganism, by the way, and the Lord calls to this pagan in Genesis 12, verse 1, and he says to him, Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Abraham rejoiced to see the day that every single nation every people group would one day be blessed through his line. This great patriarch would eventually have a promise from the Lord in chapter 15 of Genesis, where after these things, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in verse 1 of Genesis 15 in a vision, saying to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Abram's basically saying, Look, back in chapter 12, you said I'm going to be a blessing, that I'm going through me, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and I looked forward to that day, but I have a question. I don't have a kid yet. I haven't had a child with Sarah with Sarai, her name at the time was, how is this going to happen? And in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this shall not be thine heir, referring to, um, referring to the, this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, and eventually, of course, Hagar bearing um, Ishmael in chapter 16. None of these are going to be your heir. But he shall come forth out of thine own bowels, shall be thy heir, And God brought him forth abroad and said, Now look toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. 
And he said to him, so shall thy seed be. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to Abram for righteousness. Abram looked forward to the day when God would bless all of the nations of the earth through his line. And God assured him not only that he would have this son, but that this son would yield eventually a great blessing to all the nations. Jesus takes this promise to Abraham. And he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was looking for the time when I would be the one who would fulfill that promise to be the blessing to all the world. Because I am the one who has the words and sayings that will bring life, not death. Abraham looked forward to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So question one, the Jewish people asked him, aren't you a false teacher? And Jesus says, no, I actually have the words of life and that prevent death. And the second question the Jewish people ask is, are you greater than the patriarchs? And how will your words prevent death? And Jesus says, I have been honored um, by my father, and I am the one who speaks to you the truth, and I am the one who is promised by the Lord to Abraham. And Jesus claims that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. The third and final question is this. How have you seen Abraham? The Jewish people are now asking him a very pointed question, and they ask in verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, which I I took that to be really funny, honestly, because they're saying, you know, you're, you're someone who's not old. You're not yet 50 years old. And you claim you've seen Abraham. (laughs) Really? You are not only in league with Satan, not only are you someone who is in league with false teachers like the Samaritans, but man, you are absolutely insane. (laughs) You are crazy, dude. Because there's no way anybody has seen Abraham. We venerate him. We see the results of him, but we have not seen him. So you are claiming to see him. You're not even 50. In fact, the likelihood is that Jesus was probably in his early to mid-30s. So here is this guy who's claiming to be a teacher who has seen Abraham, and Abraham has seen him. How could that possibly be is their question. How have you seen Abraham? And here's where we get to the second statement that I think is very, very important in the theology of Jesus that he's trying to drive home to the Jewish people in verse 58 when he says to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was... I am. This statement by Jesus was not missed by the Jewish leaders. Because you'll see in a moment that they pick up stones to stone him. Why was that statement infuriating to them? Because Jesus is making a very interesting statement about who he is, his identity. They're claiming he's a false prophet, he's saying he's the true teacher. They're claiming that he is claiming to be greater than the patriarchs when he really is no different than any other Jew, and he's claiming that the Father has honored him. Now they're saying, you're not even old enough. How could you possibly hope to have talked with Abraham, you crazy man? And Jesus' answer is, because I am. I am the eternal one, the holy one of Israel, 
And of course, Jesus is quoting from one of the greatest texts in all of Jewish minds, where the Lord is speaking to Moses. And when Moses is being commissioned by God to lead the the Israelite people out of captivity, he begins to come up with all these excuses. And the one question he asks begins in Exodus 3 and verse 11, when Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses says unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he says, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, all these patriarchs, this same God has sent me to you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. This was the covenant name of God to his people. And it was a name that revealed something that ever since I was a kid, I just had a hard time wrapping my mind around it because I thought as a kid, whenever I read that verse, that's such a weird phrase. I am that I am. I don't understand. What is he trying to say? And he's simply trying to say, I have always existed. I never had a beginning. I never will have an end. For me, Rodney King had a beginning. That my birthday, of course, I was, I was conceived and I, there was nine months before I was born, but my birthday is June 25th, 1992. I had a begin date. And should God tarry, should Christ tarry, I'm going to have an end date. I'm living in the dash, but one day there's going to be an end date. To me, and probably to you, it's hard to fathom something that never had a beginning and that will never have an end. This service had a beginning, and Lord willing, this service will have an end. But the Lord never had a beginning, and he never has an end. He simply is. Jesus gives one of the most profound statements to the Jewish people, not only of the fact that he has always existed, so that is how he was able to see Abraham and how Abraham by faith saw Christ in his day. But Jesus makes a statement even more blasphemous in the eyes of the Jewish people. He claims to be God. He claims to be God. I am God. And one of the things that is really interesting is we don't really know exactly how to pronounce the covenant name of God. You probably have heard the name Jehovah. And in our English, that is how we have taken the transliteration of the Tetragrammaton, the holy name of God. You may have also heard the holy name of God referred to as Yahweh. But we just don't know exactly how it was pronounced. And here's the reason why. Because the Jewish people revered the holy name of God so much that rather than pronouncing and saying the word out loud, they would put a different word in its place. 
So whenever you go in the Old Testament and you see that Lord is sometimes in all caps and sometimes it's in lowercase, the reason is because sometimes the word is God's covenant name and other times it's a word Adonai. Because the Jewish people believed that God's holy name was so sacred, they could not pronounce it or speak it out loud. And so instead, they chose the word Adonai and gave the vowel pointings. In the Hebrew, they gave the vowel pointings for that word. So anytime when they came to the synagogue and were reading the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, that when they came to the covenant name of God, rather than saying the actual covenant name, they would say Adonai. So much so that we don't know how to actually pronounce the covenant name of God. Here, Jesus has the audacity to take the name of the Lord, the great I am, the one who just is, and to speak it to the Jewish people and furthermore to claim that he is him. When the Jewish people hear Jesus say these words, they are livid. Because Jesus has now, in their eyes, committed the greatest blasphemy. And frankly, if any other Jewish person or if anyone else in this room claimed to be the great I am, we would probably respond in a very similar way. Throw stones at that person. Get this false teacher out of here. Get this heretic out of here. Stand back while the lightning of God comes down upon him. But for Jesus, he had only been demonstrating over and over and over again that this is true. And when John finally gives his thesis statement at the end of this gospel, what does John say his thesis statement is? John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written. I have selected these ones. I have chosen these ones, and I have written them down, says the Apostle John, so that ye might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Jesus was not a false teacher. Jesus was not a mere man claiming to be greater than the patriarchs. Jesus was not an insane man claiming to be thousands of years old. Jesus is the one true teacher who had the words of life that those Jewish people needed to hear and that we need to hear. Jesus is greater than the patriarchs. And the Father honored him and demonstrated that very point And Jesus saw Abraham because Jesus was there as the great I am. All of this infuriated the Jews. But all of this is the very hinge that hangs our faith. Because if any of these things are false about Jesus, as the Jews claimed, what are we doing here? Why are we sitting in these pews? Why are we opening these gospels that would really just be spouting heresy? 
but it is true. It is the very hinge that our faith hangs upon. It is the very hinge that every person's faith must hang upon. You must, and there is no other way to say this, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and that his words will give you life. Because as we close here, Jesus says to them, if anyone keeps my sayings, he'll never see death. We've been going through the book of Revelation. We've seen death. And what eventually happens is death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. But the one who believes in the sayings of Jesus not only will never see death, but conversely, what Jesus is implying is they will know life. Do you know life? Do you know and believe and embrace the teachings of Jesus here that he is the son of God? And as John says, his thesis statement is for his entire gospel, that when you believe that you will have that life in his name. So Lord, we pray that this would be our heart's prayer, that we believe this truth, that we know and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is the great I am, and he is our great high priest, and he intercedes for us even now, and that he is at the right hand of the Father who is exalting him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, everything in heaven and everything in earth and everything under earth and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. They will all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the hinge upon which our faith rests. And I thank you, Lord, that as we saw this morning, all of the words that you speak are true and faithful, and that our faith is not in vain. Please encourage our hearts to continually believe this truth as we go into this week, for we ask it in our Savior's name.